This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. Hello, how's your Friday going? Got any plans this weekend, this afternoon, into the weekend? Maybe a walk along the beach, if you're into that sort of thing. If you are, you know it doesn't really take that long to come across plastic fishing gear that's just been washed up on the beach. Nets, lines, pots, traps, things like that. Uh, You'll see a bit of that every time just about you walk along the beach. And the rock lobster industry is pretty keen to do something about that. It knows that it's got all this plastic that it uses in the industry, it relies on. But maybe it can be made of some other sort of material. Um, Maybe 3D printing their own biodegradable gear and maybe those pots one day made out of that sort of gear. And if it hasn't been used for too long, it's at the bottom of the ocean, hasn't been active for a while, it just starts breaking down. Something to think about into the future anyway. Also, in the horticulture industry, apple growers will soon have access to an online tool that can will predict water and fertiliser needs right across the season. You'll learn more about that after half past 12 today. This is the Country Hour and... It's six past 12. The WA-based Southern Australian Cattle Company is hoping its first shipment of cattle to Hanan Island, which is south of China, is the first of many shipments to come. The Southern Australian Cattle Company handles all the China business for the North Australian Cattle Company, which has been exporting to Southeast Asia for about 30 years. Now, this breakthrough shipment to Hanan Island was made up of 1,785 head of cattle, averaging 520 kilograms, and was exported from the port of Fremantle just late last month. Ashley James is the Managing Director of the Southern Australian Cattle Company. Ashley, any more detail about the makeup of this particular cattle consignment? We sailed from Fremantle on the 22nd of June to our, this new customer in Hanan Island. As it was their first shipment, it was a bit of a mixed bag of cattle. It was made up of steers, heifers, bulls and cows, both British, Euro and pastoral breeds. Okay, and all from Western Australia with the export going out of Fremantle. So where did you source all the cattle from? The cattle came from north and south of Perth. The past, past, a lot of pastoral cattle out from around Jinjin that had been on feed, and then we bought cattle for as far south as Albany. Yeah, and, uh, you know, we've had a bit of a run of prices in the cattle market recently. How um, economical was this sort of trip with the prices you've got to pay for the cattle at the moment? This has been the difficulty in, in the China market is, me, is matching the demand. Uh, yeah, it was an expensive shipment. Um, but for us, it was more about opening up a new customer in China where we think, we're hoping that this company will be a regular buyer of West Australian cattle. Well, talk through the significance of the shipment then, this shipment of cattle to Hanan Island. Why Hanan Island? What is going on there and what is the significance of getting a shipment in there? Well, our, our owners have been working with, uh, working to, get shipments of cattle into Hanan Island oh, for over 60, 
yeah, over six years now. Um, they've done some work with the West Australian government back all those years ago and the construction of both the abattoir and feedlot um, has finally finished, allowing us to send the, the first shipment in there. I think the significance of it is Hanan Island is an island off really off the, off the coast of China, but it's also very close to Vietnam and they uh, prefer hot meat there, so very much like Indonesia and Vietnam. And China hasn't has been a, a market for box beef, yeah, you know, the supermarket. So the Hanan people from Hanan Island have been very excited um, about the opportunity to have Australian hot meat in the market. Um, and there was big lines of people lining up to buy the product, and they actually had to put restrictions on how much people could buy. But it will also with the box meat market, and it's a, a free of tariff, a port free of tariffs. So that will allow Australian meat to go in there, and as long as it's processed there, they'll be able to then sell the meat to mainland China without the tariff, which is currently at twelve percent. Wow! So there's that complete difference in the tariff situation from Hunan Island, just south of China, and what you'd have to pay actually going into China. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, for the live live job, it's um, it's not a real benefit as far as taxes or tariffs go, but for our meat business, we're hoping that we'll be able to sell carcasses into Hanan Island. They'll be able to then process them bone them out and box the meat and sell it into China and that'll be a significant discount once it hits the mainland China market. Now, the relationship between China and Australia isn't, uh, well, anywhere near fabulous right now, is it? It's quite a strained relationship and, you know, we can point to the sort of recent tariffs imposed on Australian barley and also China's decision to suspend imports from four Australian abattoirs. Uh, firstly, has your company been affected by that particular decision with the abattoirs? Yeah, we we ran into problems um, with one of the abattoirs in the east where we were um, processing cattle. We managed to find another abattoir that could uh, help us process cattle. Look, it's difficult. It's no different to any other market or country. We've seen it in Indonesia. Um, that's where we're a business. We'll do what we have to and leave the government the government stuff for those guys to sort out. But, you know, if we worried about every market, we wouldn't move any cattle. But do you feel that tension, that that change in the relationship as you continue to do business in China? In the live cattle, we haven't felt it yet. I guess it's a worry. Um, You know, it sits in the back of our mind, especially, you know, it costs a lot of money to put one of these shipments together. But like I say, it's it's a risk that at the moment we're you know we're willing to work with. All right, so pretty exciting after sort of six years in in the making to get this first shipment to Hanan Island. What's the future then for shipments? We'd like to do a shipment every four to six weeks into mainland China and Hanan Island. It's a lot of it at the moment is. Um, it's the supply of cattle out of Western Australia, which is very hard to source at the moment. Um, we've been going to China for over two years now, but probably 
you know, this year we haven't done as many shipments as we want, and that's just because of the cattle supply. Um, but we would like to probably have another three three up to Hanan Island by the beginning of Chinese New Year. I'm thinking back all those years when the Chinese market for the live trade sort of first opened and there was sort of huge numbers being spoken about at the time as sort of the numbers that could go on an annual basis from Australia to China. Do you still think that's got a huge potential? Oh, yeah, I think the potential's there, definitely. It's the price at the moment and the supply of cattle. We're finding it hard to source cattle, not only for China, for our other business, NACC, which is a short-haul business where we're really um, finding it difficult through the Northern Territory and Queensland to find the cattle required for those markets. So, you know, I think the drought, the fires and the floods uh, are, have all made made it very difficult not only for live cattle, but the processes as well. Uh, really good to talk to you on the Country Hour today and be good to keep in touch with you as um, uh, you work on some more of those shipments to Hanan Island. Good to talk to you, Ashley. Thank you. No problems, Belinda. Talk soon. Ashley James, he's the Managing Director of the Southern Australian Cattle Company, which is based here in Perth, in WA. This is the Country Hour, 14 past 12. And Australian farmers were pretty hopeful that a free trade deal with India would create new export opportunities and a welcome alternative market to China. Sadly, though, the deal has, well, stalled for now with the Indian government using tariffs on two key crops, that's chickpeas and lentils, to protect their local farmers. But as Michael Condon reports, some players think there is a way forward. The free trade deal with India has certainly hit a few hurdles recently, with tariffs being introduced for a number of agricultural products. Justin Smirk from Westpac is optimistic, though, that free trade deals can still be done. They may just be at the farm, company or regional level. Yeah, the, the negotiations with India are always going to be a little bit fraught. I mean, we've got to think about the motivations behind it all. India is looking to export its services industries and get them into sort of more broader area. They're, they're big exporters of um, computer technology, um, computer servicing, tele centers, all the things that we're sort of familiar with. Um, also, in terms of engineering as well. Now, they're trying to, to broaden that market. At the same time, they have some degree of pressure to support their local agricultural industries. Um, farming remains a very, very big employer of people in India. and The agri-industry has a lot of political clout. Negotiations of exports of agriculture into India are always going to be a bit difficult and fraught, same as one of our negotiations with exports of agriculture to the US or Europe or Britain. So it was never going to be an easy process. Um, there's a lot of opportunities for both countries. I think both countries are genuine. I think Modi is very driven by reform so the, the process of a free trade agreement will remain live but I think we have to be pragmatic and again think that you know, for a lot of, of what matters for us it is going to be a slow and drawn out process before we can actually see any sort of fruition from a free trade agreement. Because we saw some light in the tunnel in terms of things like lentils and chickpeas from Australia. They were getting some great prices and then immediately these sort of um, tariffs or um, markets just closed. And again that's a what we expect to see in countries that are juggling this balance between supporting local industries and getting more access to materials, more materials that they need to support their own economy. 
but but they didn't even have the, that many lentils or chickpeas. They weren't growing them because they had a drought, and they still didn't yeah. want Australian coming in. That's kind of what happens in these situations. Political institutions, difficulties around distribution networks, and the complexities of of India. India is one of the most successful democracies we've seen. It's managed to survive as a democracy since the 1940s. But it also produces a lot of degree of complexity and confusion inside, inside the system and many sort of vested interests trying to make situation in their own best interest. That's kind of what pops up with these kinds of things. And that's the battle that they're seeing within India too between the best interests of people who are working the land and owning the land and probably a lot of big large corporations as well against those who benefit from the import of foreign lentils, the average Indian who lives in the city. Justin Smirk, he's a senior economist with Westpac. This is the country hour, 18 past 12, and the weather wally has been in touch. Wanted to let you know a few things about the weather. Uh, just ahead of the cross to the Bureau of Meteorology, Weather Wally says, looks like our promising Tuesday cold front is disintegrating the closer it gets and now appears that it will deliver very little rain to southern agricultural areas, certainly nothing to create runoff into dry dams. The bomb model shows the south coast around Albany will receive nothing, whereas west coast south of Albany to get another deluge, another promising front northwest cloud band later in the week might bring something, rain as far north as Exmouth. And apparently in comparison, a massive east coast low is forecast to bring up to six inches to southern New South Wales coast next Tuesday. Thank you, Weather Wally. Uh, the details from the Bureau of Meteorology just after news headlines at half past 12. You're with Belinda Varasgetti on the Country Hour on ABC Local Radio WA. You are off to the north of the state now where the Pilbara Ports Authority has delivered a record throughput of more than 700 million tonnes for the 2019-2020 financial year. The June figures are up almost 20 million tonnes on last year with the total iron ore throughput up 6% totalling about 64 million tonnes. The port's CEO is Roger Johnston and he says it's an amazing achievement and it's only going to get better. We uh, were anticipating record volume. A couple of years ago, we knocked on the door of 700 million tonne, but back then it was cyclone, uh, a cyclone that knocked us off our perch. Last year it was cyclone Veronica, again with 697 million, and then this year 717 million tonnes. Now, in the last financial season, you guys contributed 20% of the WA's gross state product. Does it look like you're going to be on track to get that again or go higher even? Oh, James, much higher, and, and I'll tell you why. First of all, our volumes are up. So you'd say, yes, there's a volume lift, 3 or 4% of volume. So you're going to go up, what is 3% of, of, uh, of 20%? It's sort of close on a percent. So you've got a percent rise on that. But far, far more importantly is because of the world iron ore shortage, and as I've said, we've stepped into that gap, prices have gone up. So in the beginning of January, prices worldwide were something like about uh, 65 US uh, a tonne. Uh, and then through COVID, and as the as the Brazilian mines in particular were shut down, uh, the prices have jumped to over a hundred dollars. 
So I'm saying there's been a 40% increase in the value of goods exported on top of the, the volume lift. So you can see that as a port authority, uh, in particular Port Hedland, because that 20% relates only to Port Hedland, it's going to have a significant impact and push that number a lot higher. That 20% relates to Port Hedland. If you then throw in the value of all the LNG that we ship uh, and the Dampier port volumes and the rest of it, as a port authority, we're a much bigger player than even the 20%. With all these shipping numbers and iron ore prices fairly strong, you know, it might be music to an economist's ear, but what does it actually mean for the average Joe blog? Well, we, uh, just Port Hedland alone has a multiplier effect and one in 12 jobs in Western Australia is related in some way, shape or form to activity in Port Hedland. Let me give you an example. We have a bulk export berth, uh, the port operates, which is truck delivery. There are 440 quad road train deliveries there every 24 hours. So for every truck, you need 3.78 drivers to meet the shift uh, and, the, and, it runs, and it runs 365. But each of those trucks has got 98 tyres. And the truck does a thousand kilometers a day because it goes to the mine site and back twice during the 24 hours. So you've got to replace for every truck nearly a hundred tires every 60 days. So you have these multiplier effects. You have tire suppliers, guys who fit truck tires. You've got all the hydraulic hoses uh, that are serviced on each of those trucks because they have four trailers each and they need servicing. So you've got hydraulic fitters, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm saying that you know, for every tonne of iron ore, don't think it's just, you know, a percentage of an FTE. There's continuing waves of it, you know, sort of second and third tier who who, who are required to do the delivery. So a port like us, which is very, very substantial, has a multiplier effect. And as I say, just Port Headland is one in 12 jobs and you would be thinking it's it's uh, the numbers are creeping up. Pilbara Ports Authority CEO Roger Johnston with James Liveris. 23 past 12. Antipa Minerals has executed a $30 million deal with IGO to further explore the Patterson province, which is in the Pilbara and is a highly prospective copper and gold region. The company successfully obtained the original tenements for the land back in 2011 when nobody else was really interested in the area. But since that time, it's had farm-in agreements with Rio Tinto, Newcrest Mining, and now with IGO, who's hoping to capitalise on what's beneath the surface. Executive Chairman Stephen Power says it's huge news for the North West. Look, it's, it's fantastic. sets us up. We still retain about 140 square k's ourselves. So it really sets us up. In the next two years, um, there'll be $20 million worth of exploration happening out there on those tenements, which is fantastic for the region and, you know, the local um, stakeholders, including the Matu and Yangamata groups. Uh, it's fantastic for, for the whole, uh, you know, sort of local uh, industry, I think. So we're really happy and we hope to leverage off, you know, a large investment and uh, kick it off and ho- hopefully get into production. Yeah, it's a um, highly prospective area for gold and copper. What are you guys hoping to target? That's what we are. We, we've currently got about 700,000, 720,000 ounces of gold and with, with copper in the ground we're retaining. 
We've also got over a million ounces up at Calibre on our Rio ground with them. And that we knew a discovery by Rio Tinto, which they say they'll have, have that in production by 2023. That's what they've announced. 45 k's away in our joint venture ground with them is the Calibre deposit, which they're currently, this year, they're spending $9 million to try and extend out the strike of that resource and, and the actual size of the resource. And so we think that's got a that's a fair candidate to provide, you know, startup feeder style ore to the winnow production. So look, it's it's great. Uh, I think with Telf Telford is a is a world class gold mine. You know, it's it's in its heyday. It was pre mining thirty two million ounces of gold and height well over from twelve to fourteen ounce gram per ton gold. It's like yeah, it's a it's up there with the the world best that mine so that's what the the region has to offer and it's only been lightly explored and the reason for that is is that it's it's covered it's not sticking it doesn't stick up out of the ground chelfer was but um it's covered by sand dunes and uh but now you can sort of there's various techniques to see underneath that cover and that's what we take uh, advantage of Antipa Minerals Executive Chairman Stephen Power speaking with James Liveris about a new partnership deal that's just signed with IGO, who's keen to explore the prospective Patterson province in the Pilbara. 26 past 12 news headlines and off to the Bureau of Meteorology just after half past 12 today. As you know, this week on the ABC, there's been a whole lot of coverage, a variety of mental health-related stories as Australians, as you, adapt to an uncertain world with many reporting feelings of anxiety and stress. For the community of Richmond in the northwest of Queensland, support for families has come through quite an unlikely source in the form of yoga and meditation classes delivered online. Tom Major has this report. It's early morning on Woodstock Station in Queensland's southern Gulf Country, where the days start with a hearty feed of breakfast and a team meeting before work begins. Life is busy and people don't always make time for themselves amid the dozens of ongoing jobs involved with running a cattle station. But grazier Jade Lord makes sure she always makes time for herself through her yoga practice. When I moved up here to Richmond, the first couple of years, like I said, we were just head down bum out working outside, you know, dealing with the drought. So I actually stopped practicing and it really affected me mentally. Yeah, I just didn't feel like I was on top of my game. I was actually hearing that within the entire community as well. And so that's when I decided to go and do my yoga teacher training. I, I started some community classes and I've just always had people showing up ever since. With the vast distances involved, Several of Jade Lord's yoga classes are conducted online. But Jade says while they're an additional option for busy and isolated participants, it doesn't replace the importance of community interaction. I do really believe in the physical and that that one-on-one contact or the face-to-face contact is very valuable. And that's why, you know, I make the effort each week to drive into our local community because in that space comes a lot of conversations. And that's where people feel safe to open up and share about how they actually are. For workers in the cattle industry, the cooler months are usually a time of parties, rodeos, 
race meetings and festivals. But this year, most have been cancelled, and that can lead to isolation for some ringers, like Lord Pastoral Worker Sam McGrath. Where we are here, there's not too many other big stations. We do normally go, we try and plan the old event or something with our other Lord Pastoral companies and doing the best we can with out here and the people we've got, like we've been doing sort of trivia nights and just card nights. Many of these stations also rely on seasonal labour from international working holiday makers, like Laura Goebbels, who hails from eastern Canada. While internet is still a limited commodity out here, she's thankful of the opportunity the connection does afford to stay in contact with her family. I have never been a person who's been super reliant on my phone, so I wasn't that concerned. The only thing here at Woodstock is that we don't get unlimited Wi-Fi, so we don't stream Netflix or YouTube or anything, and I'm a huge movie watcher. So always keeping in contact with my parents, obviously, and my sisters, so just talking with them about what's going on there. But yeah, it's strange hearing about people in quarantine and everything because it doesn't really affect us strongly out here. Yep, And making sure the only isolation out here is the physical distance from family and friends has been a key aim of Nico Lord to help the grazier attract and retain staff on his vast Woodstock station. For people to be able to have that moment where they can connect with, you know, I've got a sister on the other side of the world, to be able to do a FaceTime with her, it, it, you know, it just allows you that moment where you can take yourself away from the station and connect with loved ones. And, and that's really important, doesn't matter who you are. Um, your social media is all that sort of stuff for the crew, you know, is important. For Jade Lord, the Richmond Shire's determination to band together, even during times of social distancing, has really given the mother of two a renewed sense of pride about her community's ongoing strength. So we've gone online with personal training, with boot camps, with yoga classes, you know, the mums and bubs play groups, and they've made sure that they have continued to connect with the mums and support the parents of the community and for, you know, for their health and well-being. Every single day something has been offered either to a parent or to a child. Jade Lord from Woodstock Station, which is 200 kilometres north of Richmond in northwest Queensland. And that report from Tom Major. 29 to 1 here on the Country Hour. Off to the newsroom now for an update with Brianna Shepherd. Hello, Belinda. In breaking news, the WA Premier has announced the state will delay the introduction of the Phase 5 easing of restrictions due to the number of people in hotel quarantine and the situation in Victoria. The next phase was supposed to be introduced on July 18. We'll have more on that coming up in the news on in the next hour. Victorians are being asked to wear masks after the state recorded the biggest single-day jump in COVID-19 cases. 288 people tested positive for the virus over the last 24 hours. The Victorian Premier Daniel Andrews has recommended that all Victorians wear face coverings when out in public, although it's not mandatory. And the National Cabinet has agreed to launch a nationwide review of hotel quarantine. Prime Minister Scott Morrison today announced former senior public servant Jane Halton will lead the review. The number of international arrivals will also be cut by 4,000 each week to reduce the strain on hotel quarantine in some states. More news coming up on the hour. Thank you for the update, Brianna. 28 to 1 here on the Country Hour. Still to come between now and the news at 1 o'clock. The results of the wool market, of course, being a Friday. This is the last wool market for... What is it, three weeks? I think the recess is. So the wool market up a little bit this week and Alice Wilson going through the details for you just before the news at one. Also, Northern Territory mangoes have already hit the market 
and selling really well by the sounds of things. Uh, you head to the Sydney markets shortly. And the rock lobster industry trying to do something about all the plastic in that industry. That's to come between now and the news at one. Twenty-seven to one, ABC WA. This is the Country Hour. Hello, I'm Belinda Varasketti. With you right through to the news at one. Off to the Bureau of Meteorology now. Stephen McInerney with you this afternoon. Stephen, how's it looking this afternoon in the Southwest Land Division? And then spend as much time as you can talking about the cold front coming through, sort of Tuesday of next week, and what potentially there might be as far as rain goes. Yeah, look, the yeah, as you say, there's not much going around. Uh, I guess for the next couple of days, I mean, we've got a high to the south. So really, it's just showers along the south coast, uh, east of Esperance for the next couple of days. Uh, I guess once we get towards uh, the latter part of Sunday, we start seeing some showers developing again uh, for the southwest district. Um, So you might see a little bit of rain through there. Um, They may push as far north as, say, Perth during that evening period, but uh, that will slide away pretty quickly. So as you said, um, it is going to be that, that front that comes through I suppose later on Wednesday, oh, sorry, later on Monday into Tuesday. So, I mean, the rainfall totals might be a little bit slightly less than we were sort of saying yesterday. So it looks like there's a few systems coming through next week. So that first system on Monday uh, or Monday evening, uh, you'll see, I guess, the main falls really along the south, oh, sorry, the west coast, say south of uh, Geraldton through there during the day. So most of those falls will be in that, I suppose, the Bunbury, Bustleton into the Capel region uh, during Monday evening in general. Um, but then as we go towards uh, Tuesday, as that front moves through, um, we're going to have some pretty reasonable falls all the way from, say, uh, Exmouth down towards uh, Israelite Bay, so in that whole southwestern parts of the state. So inland parts for the southwest land division, you could see falls up to, say, uh, 10, 15 mils um, through the uh, interior parts of the central wheat belt, uh, Great Southern, a bit, I suppose lighter through the uh, southeast coastal district. So around that Esperance region, most likely won't see too much in the way of rainfall that day. Uh, and also the central west, you'd see some reasonable falls as it goes through. So in that, I suppose, 5 to 15 range is possible. Uh, but again, the heavier falls will be more through the lower west, uh, southwest districts where you could see anywhere from, say, uh, 15 to 30 mils up through there, most likely uh, through the, I suppose, the more helio regions as that system moves in. Wednesday, a bit of a relief um, in between the next set of fronts, and then Thursday, again, some showers developing through the southwest land division, uh, once more focused towards, I suppose, the, the lower west, southwest coasts uh, as the system comes in. But that should spread through 
during Friday. So again, you could see um, falls reaching uh, eastern parts of that southwest land division. So again, say five to 15 mils is possible uh, through the central wheat belt, great southern uh, inland parts of the central west as well, even pushing in towards southwestern areas of the Gascoyne. So yeah, I think next week it does look like there is a potential that we could see a few fronts that give some uh, welcome relief uh, through eastern parts of that southwest land division. This text just through, Stephen, if we can pinpoint a spot on the map, how much rain is the southeast coastal Gardner to Ravensthorpe expecting? Over the week? Uh, Tuesday uh, is the question for Tuesday. Tuesday. Yeah, look, unfortunately it doesn't look the best through there, so kind of looks like the, the sort of system falls apart as it gets further east. So you could see, say, five mils potentially through there. At this range, it looks like the system that comes through uh, Thursday into Friday may produce a little bit more rain, but I mean, given that it is seven days away, um, there's always a bit of a caveat on the, I suppose, the, the total rainfall through there. So I think there should get some rain uh, through there over the next week or so, but I mean, it might still only really be about 10 15 mils total, um, maybe, as, as much as they could expect. All right. Check again on Monday anyway. Yep. Uh, northern and eastern parts then? Uh, so I guess that's going to be dominated really by the high in the south of the state. So we've got some fresh easterlies uh, developing through the Pilbara region uh, during tomorrow, and they'll extend into the uh, Kimberley region on uh, Sunday as well. So we'll have some strong wind warnings up through there over the next couple of days. Um, there is that front, though, as I said. I mean, it is going to affect the southwest of the state mostly, but it should start bringing some rain uh, for western parts of the uh, Pilbara region and also the uh, western parts of the Gascoyne as we go during Tuesday. There is a risk that we could see some thunderstorms as well around the, I suppose, the far far western parts of that Pilbara, northwestern parts of that uh, Gascoyne as well as that system moves through. Uh, then conditions sort of clear off for a period uh, during uh, Thursday, Friday as well. So really, uh, I suppose the falls will sort of contract more towards the south of the state. So in the north, I mean, it's really just going to be that far western Pilbara that could see some rain. Uh, and then in the south, I mean, it doesn't look to be too much for the Euclid district as east front moves through. Uh, even for the uh, southwestern areas of the goldfields, probably not too much either. So you could see maybe f five mils or so as these systems move through next week. And warnings this afternoon? Uh, currently, no warning, so it's really just going to be, I suppose, potentially a little bit of frost activity for the southwest of the state uh, tonight and into tomorrow morning. Thank you, Stephen. 21 to 1 here on the Country Hour. To the rainfall figures now, looking back over the last 24 hours to 9 o'clock this morning. And in northern and eastern forecast districts, just one over five mils in the Eucla air had six in the Southwest Land Division, the Southwest, Millianup, six, Scott River, five, and in the Southern Coastal Region, Bremer Bay, six, Air and Air, seven, Hopeton, five, Oakmarsh Farm, five, Tolina Downs, seven, and the Duke had six. And then in the Great Southern, Amrister Park, five mills in the gauge. Now, last week, the federal government announced where the future drought fund would be spent. And there was quite a bit of criticism about allocating some of that money to help farmers with business plans. Reporter Emma Field investigates where this idea came from. 
Last week, Federal Agriculture Minister David Littleproud announced about $20 million will be spent on helping farmers develop business plans and business management skills. This money is from the $3 billion Future Drought Fund. The minister explains why business plans will be funded. There has been university studies around Australia that indicate more than 50% of farmers don't have business plans and they don't have the financial literacy they should. Now, when they are a burden on the Australian taxpayer asking for handouts, I have to make sure that I can give them the resilience and the tools to be able to prepare for droughts and get through droughts. David Littleproud went on to say the success of the WA Drought Pilot Program run from 2010 to 2012 and included training farmers in business skills was one of the reasons they made this decision. Andrew Huffer is a consultant who was involved in that pilot scheme. The time we were together, they'd build in elements like looking at the financial components of the business and what that needs to look like in the future, looking at the natural resource management asset in terms of soils, natural resource management, and importantly, the family side of it. Who's going to be involved? Are we looking at some succession planning issues? What sort of roles do people want in the business in the future? After running this program, what was the evidence that it made any difference in people's businesses? Anecdotally, there's people I've run into over the years who have implemented their plans and got massive value from it, and some who made some significant changes and even moved out of sectors, some that moved out of Broadacre and into the pastoral sector, but using that strong planning approach, we're able to make some really valuable long-term decisions and investment and also bring the next generation into the process as well. Some really good news stories in amongst it for those who... um, really embrace it, I think was my take on it. Cameron Weeks is a director of Farm Consultancy Plan Farm. I asked him how many farmers he thought had a business plan. I think it it depends on what you define as a business plan. I think the majority wouldn't actually have there with a formal written business plan, but a good business knows where it's going, has some sort of a vision, has some goals, whether that be about expansion, whether that be about, you know, passing to the next generation, i.e. farm succession. When it comes to formally written, I'd say not the majority, but that doesn't mean that they're not good businesses. Perhaps it's just not written in a a formal sense. Cameron Weeks from Plant Farm said he hoped this announcement would open a broader discussion about training farmers in business skills. So our experiences as farm business consultants is that there's a lot of farmers that are good at production, but there's a smaller proportion of farmers that are truly outstanding at the business of farming. So the business of farming really is, is all things, you know, not inclusive of production. So, you know, understanding profitability, machinery, financing, taxation, you know, legal, succession planning, human resource management, everything bar production. So we decided ourselves to actually build the business of farming program, which we've been delivering uh, to farmers for the last two years. So given this sort of business planning is being delivered commercially, I asked Cameron Weeks if the government should be stepping in to fund a similar thing. I think in principle it's good. I'd, I'd just hate to see the, the government go and plough a whole heap of money into building and designing some sort of a business planning program when there's already plenty of expertise out there. Certainly in WA there's a myriad of farm management consultants with really good expertise in business planning, but also there'll be an education component to it and you know, we've got the product, the plant, the business of farming by the Plant Farm Academy sitting there and available. 
Andrew Huffer says there are benefits to a similar scheme being run Australian-wide, but only if farmers implement it. I think it would provide value if you acted on it and if you were able to shape it to your current circumstances. If they don't have a business plan, what kind of incentives do you think they'll need to, to sort of invest in one? There's value in doing one regardless of financial incentives. Certainly we saw in the previous program that the financial incentives, it got them over the line, I guess. The cash part certainly got people who may not have been interested very interested. And for others, they were coming along because they knew we just needed the time and the space off the farm to sit down with people who are independent and don't necessarily have a financial or other interest in the business to help us through, give us a structure and a process. Consultant Andrew Huffer. This through from Brett in Kandinan. Looks like it was consultants that put together a proposal for our drought money. And lo and behold, most of our money is going to go straight into consultants' pockets. Consultants are a blight on our farming industry, uh, according to Brett in Kandinan. 0448-922-604 to text through. Just so you know, there were about 900 WA farm businesses that took part in the drought pilot program and in the formal evaluation of the people that took part in it, they reported they felt more prepared for drought after doing the workshops and also reported improvements in personal and family well-being. But this review also said that future programs shouldn't undermine incentives for farmers to self-prepare. 14 to one. Uh, the wool market details for you just before the news at one and the market up just a little bit before the three-week recess. Well, this time yesterday, you were right in the middle of a panel discussion on the way grain growers are making in-season fertiliser decisions. And the point was made by Wayne Plusky, who has about 30 years' experience in advising farmers on variable rate applications, that some farmers are just not making as much money from fertiliser as they could be. If you missed it, just have a listen to the second half of the Country Hour yesterday on the uh, online or if you can download the ABC Listen app on your phone, do it that way. But if horticulture is more your thing, then you'll be interested to hear that apple growers will soon have access to an online tool that can predict water and fertiliser needs right across the season. It's taken the Tasmanian Institute of Agriculture four years of research to produce this tool. But Nigel Swartz, who's one of the research coordinators, is pretty confident it'll lead to improved productivity. This project has has been centred around a whole stack of nitrogen work, really trying to understand how an apple tree uses nitrogen. And then on top of that, we've looked at, I guess, how much natural turnover of nitrogen is there in the soil. And then what is the contribution, what is the requirement of fertiliser nitrogen for an apple tree? And so it's those kind of three sources of nitrogen, so the internally supplied, the natural turnover in the soil, and then the top-up that the growers give. How can we use those resources most efficiently to be able to produce a very good quality crop? And you know, growers across the country are really aiming for top quality, so like top quality fruit, so fruit that will last in storage, fruit that are really is really nicely coloured and fruit that has a, a real solid crunch. Like a consumer wants to, wants to enjoy that crunch when they bite into the apple. And so managing their irrigation and nitrogen, I mean, it's not the whole story, of course, because there's 
whole stack of other management factors that have got to come into it, but irrigation and nitrogen resource use is, uh, is critical to that. So when this tool is, is finally complete, what will growers end up punching in to get yeah. their, their average inputs? So at the moment, the, the, the tool is, is based on an Excel, Excel worksheet platform. So growers will be able to input uh, where they're growing their apples, uh, so their location, and that will feed into the Bureau of Meteorology Climate Database, and we've downloaded all that data. It sits in the back, background of the tool. We'll need to know their soil type. So uh, we have done soil sampling from across the country to know all about what a, a typical apple orchard soil growing conditions are like. And then we need to know the age of the tree, the variety, uh, the, and the, the root that, I guess, the tree spacing and the, the row spacing. Um, in the orchard, that gives us a bit of an understanding about how many trees there are per hectare, which then leads us to understand how much, what's the potential yield they've got for that block, for that variety. And then lastly, growers need to tell us what their irrigation strategy is, whether they use uh, drippers, whether they use uh, microjet sprays and and what kind of row spacing and, and dripper spacing that they might have. And then essentially the tool will then calculate calculations uh, using those worksheets in the background and will tell growers what's the likely amount of water they're going to need to produce that crop for the season, broken down in a month-by-month basis. So when they should start irrigating, how much they're likely to need for that month uh, based on historical climate records. And, and then they could do some scenario setting. Say, for example, if they want to produce a, an extra 20 tonnes a hectare, how much extra water is that going to cost? What are some of the other savings that, that farmers could potentially get out of modelling like this? Essentially, what we really would like to be able to use this tool for is, is about conversation starting. So I, I really hope that growers will be able to take this tool or take these, this information that we'll get from this tool to their advisors, um, their agronomists or their irrigation specialists, and have a conversation around um, what their irrigation and nitrogen use is likely to be for their farm. Now, what was really interesting when we did surveys across the country, we found that a lot of growers did actually have a water budget for their farm. And for many growers, irrigation and and water use was a a significant deal. But whilst they had a budget, there was a little bit of lack of information about knowing exactly how much water uh, their orchard used. And so I think this information is going to really feed into that. Nigel Swartz from the Tasmanian Institute of Agriculture with Larissa Smith. And that online program is going to be available to growers on the Apple and Pear Australia website in the coming months. In the middle of July already, uh, but already, there are mangoes getting picked in the Northern Territory with more than 1,300 trays already sent to the markets last week. Now, most of them were green-eating varieties, but there were some super early ripe Kensington Pride mangoes in the mix as well. Vin Nguyen from the Sydney market says the green mangoes are fetching really big prices. Oh, what's going on? So I spotted Nemdok Mai's uh, in the markets yesterday, come from Northern Territory. Uh, they hit the shelves at about 140 for 10 kilo boxes. Uh, also, Farlon mangoes, green sweet mangoes have come down as well. They're about the same margin, 140 for 10 kilos. Um, there's a couple of other sub-varieties, which are cheaper second-grade options, but varying between $60 to $80, $100, depending on the quality and the sourness of the variety. 
Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm hoping, I'm hoping prices will come down as, as the season progresses. It's a bit too expensive to, to put out in shops at the moment. So far, the only customers taking them are, uh, some restaurants and, and, and some shops in Karamata. Other than that, it's a bit too risky on a retail level at the moment. Have you seen $140 a box before? That seems exceptionally high. Last year, last year, it was about that much. Um, they did, actually, no, that's a lie. They started off at about 160 160 for Kale Savoy's, the more the more favorable green sweet mangoes. Yep. Uh, the Namdocs, I think, last year, about 120 130 tops. Yeah, but every every year it, it just changes. It gets a bit earlier. It's and they finish off um, later. It's it's a it's a funny season every year. And so, what are you expecting in terms of the the flow of territory fruit from here on? Oh, it's it's hard to say now. It's used to be used to be able to predict um, supply and demand, um, but nowadays because of COVID nineteen and you know anything can happen down next couple of months. It could be it could be great selling. It could it could die in the next couple of weeks. It's it's hard to it's hard to it's hard to predict what exactly will happen. Fair enough. So you don't want to yeah. you don't want to get stuck on that. <clears throat> uh, have you seen any ripe mangoes there? We, we've heard a few ripe KPs have been sent. I, I have heard. I haven't been able to uh, have a look around to see what they have. Uh, I have heard they've they're retailing trays at eighty dollars. Um, which again is it's hard to retail mainly mainly high end restaurants and and select shops in say Karamata or maybe the city would start taking them on possibly even for exporting, um, but definitely not for like our small little green grocers here and there you know, around um, around New South Wales. So customers that are buying green territory mangoes at the moment, what are they after? What what are they looking for when they when they're forking out some of these big dollars? Oh, so they they want to buy they want to buy Namdocs. They want to buy the sour of the sour mangoes. They want to, they want Namdoc mice. That's what they want. If they can get a decent substitute, they would probably swing towards R2s or Farland if they want something a little bit sweeter. Or they would probably go towards Kensington Pride, green Kensington Prides. Um, there's another sub variety in between Chocodarms. That's the one. Chocodarms. They they will go for Chocodarms if that's a viable option as well. Um, but after that, yeah, the other varieties they don't sell as well, and they sort of give them a miss. They they really want Namdocs on on their on their menus. Vin Nguyen from TV Farms in the Sydney markets speaking to Matt Bran. Five to one here on the Country Hour, and just a few moments ago, talking about the future drought fund and how the federal government plans on spending some of that money, and there's been quite a bit of criticism about allocating some of that money to help farmers with business plans. And then Brett from Kandinan was having a crack at consultants and that's pushed your buttons by the sounds of things. Uh, Merv agreed with Brett. Here, here, Brett, I agree, consultants, get your hands off. Uh, Tony and Geraldton says, it shows the minister is out of touch saying business plans will stop farmers getting handouts from the government. I've been farming for 50 years and never got a red cent out of any government, says Tony. Uh, the perfect job would be a consultant for a consultant. They're nothing but parasites. They make a lot of noise but don't take any responsibilities. And this through too, given that David Littleproud and all of his mates in Parliament are privy to some pretty hefty taxpayer-funded handouts, 
In the form of their rather generous salary and super entitlements, perhaps each MP could provide us with a business plan of what they hope to achieve in each term of government. Most farmers have some kind of business plan, but we have to be pretty agile regarding weather, prices, yields, supply and demand, tariffs unfairly exacted, etc., etc. We need funds to help drought-proof our land, dams, tanks, trees, etc. Not more money for consultants. You've got a couple of minutes to shoot a text through. Zero double four eight nine double two six zero four. This is the country hour. Four minutes to one. Off to the wool market now. And it was up a bit this week. The Eastern Market Indicator up 18 cents to close at 1,134 cents a kilogram clean. And the Western Market Indicator up 17 cents to close at 1,202 cents a kilo clean. Alice Wilsden, can you go through the market in a little more detail? Yes, we were able to finish on a positive note, being the last sale before breaking for a three-week recess. It was a Tuesday-Wednesday sale with 35,262 bales on offer. 4.6% was withdrawn prior to sale and only 6.2% was passed in. Melbourne and Sydney offered over both selling days and Fremantle held a one-day sale on the Wednesday. The Fremantle wool sales enjoyed good support and competition this week with 4,307 bales offered. Only 2.8% was withdrawn prior to sale and only 7.8% was passed in post-sale. Buyers were active throughout the day looking to finalise orders and fill containers prior to the three-week break. Better types were well sought after and all microns enjoyed gains for the day. The finder end was able to push up 4 to 11 cents, while the mid to broad end was able to jump up nearly 30 cents for the day. Ornaments and pieces were supported, but results remained firmed and unchanged over all pieces, locks, lambs, crutchings and cardings. Finishing quotes of Fremantle were 18 micron finished at 1433 cents, which was up 11 cents. 19 micron finished at 1278 cents, which was up 4 cents. 20 micron finished at 1254 cents, which was up 29 cents. 21 micron finished at 1229 cents, which was up 28 cents. And the 22 micron finished at 1210 cents, which was up 30 cents. Major buyers on the day were PJ Morris, West Coast Wool and Tech Wool Trading. We now break for a three-week recess with the first auction sale being held the first week of August. Thank you very much for that, Alice. It's one and a half minutes to the news at one o'clock. And the latest WA crop estimates have just been released by the Grain Industry Association of Western Australia, or GIWA. And there's not too much change from last month, really. It's downgraded total hectares planted by 1,000 hectares to 8.5 million hectares. And the estimated oat plantings dropped a bit too, down 9% on last month's estimates. And Guy was saying that some growers who were saying they were going to switch to oats when the barley tariff was announced actually ended up planting more wheat. Wheat plantings were up slightly to 4.9 million hectares and Giwa says this year's grain season has the potential to return average yields. All the details on the Country Hour on Monday. Hello, I'm Thomas O'Reedy. Join me for The World Today. As the pandemic continues, one of the biggest unanswered questions has been why some people are so severely affected, while others hardly have symptoms at all. We'll speak to a researcher at the front line of the effort to understand why. And drought, bushfires and now border closures. Regional communities in Victoria and New South Wales come to terms with the uncertainty. That's coming up on The World Today. Hope you can join me. It is not too far away. This just in from Ron. Banks won't touch you without a business plan. Time for the news. One o'clock. 
You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.